0: In 1980, George Lucas came out with his second film in the Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back. And yet one aspect of that movie that has left its mark on Hollywood and in the hearts of its fans for decades is that iconic cliffhanger at the end. Luke Skywalker, a Jedi Knight, who seeks to lead the Rebel Alliance's struggle against its enemy, the Galactic Empire, faces off at the end of the movie against the Alliance's arch-nemesis, Darth Vader. And as Luke and Vader put on a lightsaber brawl for the ages, we're given a piece of information that we did not expect. As the fight rages on, we come to this, this climax in the movie, as Luke is... Getting it handed to him by Vader, the most powerful blow was not him getting his hand cut off, nor Vader, nor Luke telling Vader that he killed his father, but for Darth Vader telling Luke, I am your father, in a James Earl Jones kind of voice. Every mouth in that theater dropped whenever he dropped that phrase. Certainly one of the greatest plot twists of all time and quite possibly the greatest cliffhanger. Because as soon as those movie credits started rolling, everybody was asking what in the world just happened. Is he really Luke's father? And poor souls in 1980, they were the pre-internet age. They had to wait a whole three years to find out if that was legit or not. And this is the art of the cliffhanger and why so many either just love it or they loathe it. Because just when you think you're about to get to the conclusion, it pulls the rug right out from underneath you. And it leaves you asking questions. It builds suspense. And then it leaves you hanging, wanting more. It leaves the story in a state of incompletion. And you begin to crave for the answer, even if it has to wait three years. Well, this morning we conclude our series in Jonah, and we're left with a cliffhanger at the end of the book. It reaches a climax without fully giving you the resolution, and it leaves you asking the same question to yourself that God raises to Jonah. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. You can find it on page 775 in the red seat back Bible there in front of you. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at God's prophet, Jonah. God has commissioned him to go to Nineveh and to warn them of their impending judgment. Rather than getting up and going to Nineveh and impending them of that judgment, Jonah actually got up and ran. And at first glance, we wouldn't blame him, would we? Nineveh was wicked and he committed great evil against God's people, Israel. But though Jonah ran from the Lord, the Lord actually doesn't give up on Jonah. He runs after him, but not in the way that we would expect. And so Jonah boards a boat in the opposite direction of Nineveh, and the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. And eventually Jonah gets thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish appointed by the Lord. In the belly of that great fish, Jonah expresses great repentance toward God. In the heart of the fish, the Lord is working on the heart of Jonah. In chapter two, we saw that the Lord sometimes brings us to our knees to show us that our greatest need is Him. And what Jonah believed to be God's judgment was actually just the mercy of His discipline. Jonah finally saw how fleeing the will of the Lord is foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. And so the Lord delivers Jonah from the belly of the fish. And he recommissions him to go to Nineveh. And what we see is God's determination to get his word to the most vile of people. And rather than run, Jonah obeys God and he goes to Nineveh. And in chapter 3, we see Jonah preaching the very salvation that he had actually just received and experienced in chapter 2. Yet what we didn't see was that the whole city ends up getting converted. We didn't see that coming. They end up trusting in God. We would expect God to actually destroy this wicked city, just like Jonah. And yet what we learn was that when sinners repent, God relents from the threat of destruction that he had placed upon them. And initially, we're we're left wondering and wanting this story to end right here. I mean, what a wonderful ending. To have the Ninevites repent, they're converted. What a wonderful ending, ending of the story. It's all done, right there. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor our ways, his ways. And what we thought would be the ending to an incredible story turns out to be an encore we were not expecting in chapter 4. So let's read the the unexpected finale that we find here in chapter 4. Listen as I read Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head. To save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Well, When we think of the story of Jonah, we often think of Jonah getting swallowed up by the fish. We don't think about chapter 4. <laughs> that is not what we think of. However, in this chapter, it's in this chapter where we really reach the summit and the climax of the book. And oddly enough, we're left with a cliffhanger for the ending. And yet, the main idea that we're left to consider in this chapter, I think, is this, this morning, from chapter 4, is that God's people learn to love what he loves. Even if that love extends to those we don't love. God's people... Learn to love what he loves, even if that love extends to those we don't love. I think that's the main idea of Jonah chapter 4. How do you respond when the love of God you rejoice in extends to others you resent? How do you respond to that? This is what the Lord is wanting Jonah and for us to consider this morning. And he does so really in two ways. In verses 1 through 4, God exposes Jonah's heart problem. He exposes his heart. And then in verses 5 through 11, the bell rings and class is in session. The Lord is the teacher and he's teaching his remedial student, Jonah. And he's teaching him a lesson about his character. And what this structure highlights, what it accentuates, what it silhouettes, are really the contrast. Between God's heart and Jonah's heart, which serve as our two points. Point number one, we're gonna look at Jonah's self serving complaint in verses one through four. Jonah's self serving complaint. And then point number two, God's self giving compassion. His self giving compassion. So, point number one, Jonah's self giving or self serving complaint. This chapter begins in a totally unexpected way. (laughs) Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I mean, Jonah had just finished preaching and witnessing one of the greatest revivals in all of history. We would expect him to be, like, ecstatic. He's fist-pumping, high-fiving the Ninevites, riding off on his donkey into the sunset with a massive smile on his face, giving praise to God. That's not what we see. As a prophet of God, he just saw an entire city converted. I mean, for one's prophetic career, this is, this is the pinnacle. This is it. But not for Jonah. This would be like the Italian artist Michelangelo stepping back from his statue of David to the praise and the acclamation of the known world, heralding it as a masterpiece. And then him hanging his head in dejection and disappointment, and anger for their applause. It would be like winning a Nobel Peace Prize and then being upset about it and then turning it down. This is crazy. It's ludicrous. Jonah's reaction seems ridiculous. Instead of rejoicing, he resents it and he becomes angry. What? What is going on? Angry at what? Well, in verse 1, We see that it falls on the heels of chapter 3, verse 10, where we read of God relenting from the destruction he threatened against Nineveh. God relented when Nineveh repented. And it wasn't that Jonah was just angry at this, but that he saw it as evil. Literally, verse 1 reads this way. You can find it there in the footnote at the bottom of of the page in your Bible. It reads this way. This was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. Jonah was a prophet of God, calling something God did that was good evil. Jonah's right back where he started. God's fierce anger cooled down when Nineveh repented, and Jonah's, it heated up. God's mercy toward Nineveh served as kindling to the fire that was raging in Jonah's heart. Nineveh repented, God relented. And Jonah resented. But why? Verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, it, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Unlike many of the psalmists who in their prayers bring their complaint to God... Jonah prays, bringing his complaint about God. It wasn't that Nineveh turned back to their evil ways on day three as to why Jonah is upset right here. No, it's ultimately God's good character in forgiving them. And now we get a sneak peek really into Jonah's motivation for why he ran in chapter one in the first place. And what's interesting is that this description of God's character is quoted verbatim in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. And in that passage, the Lord is calling his people to repent. And what's the ground, what's the basis of that repentance, of turning back to the Lord? It's the Lord's character. <laughs> the character of God should lead to repentance, much like the Ninevites in chapter 3. And yet for Jonah, God's character was the basis for his resentment. It was the basis for his resentment. Jonah says that he knew God to be this way. Yet he didn't like it. That didn't mean he liked it. And this description of God is first derived from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And this is the passage that really answers the question of who is God. It answers the question, who is God? Do you want to know who God is? Go to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Some have even stated that aside from Christ's incarnation, this is the high point of divine revelation in all the scriptures. This passage right here. And what we see is God's glory and his goodness on display through his mercy and his grace and his compassion. But what's interesting in Jonah's use of that passage is not how they're similar but how they're different. Jonah leaves out the key phrase, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Jonah believed God wasn't being just by showing mercy to Nineveh. He felt the right thing to do was to just wipe them out, annihilate them. That's what real justice means. And he thought God wasn't doing right by his character. God was not upholding who he said that he is. That is, according to Jonah. Moses beheld God's glory and his goodness. Jonah beheld a character malfunction. And what he's wrestling with is what's called the riddle of the Old Testament. You've probably heard that. Jonah had a theological issue. How can God be both merciful and just? Jonah's wondering how in the world God can love his people and at the same time love their enemies. God, don't you care about us? They deserve to be wiped out for what they have done. You should have given them what they deserved. Yet Jonah's problem is deeper than this. His theology was hemorrhaging because he had built a morality in search of a theology rather than a morality built upon a right theology. Jonah's inadequate theology revealed a deeper issue within his heart. He read Exodus 34 to mean that God loved his people and he would judge their enemies, which he would. But he didn't account for what happens if those enemies actually repent and turn to the Lord, as we saw in chapter 3. Jonah's problem wasn't that he thought he failed his mission, but that he didn't think Nineveh deserved the outcome of that mission. That the holiness of God meant that he didn't show mercy to Jonah's enemies. Not his people. God doesn't show mercy to them. He loved mercy toward himself. And he despised and he hated it toward others. And he was using God's word to justify his position. As one scholar put it, Jonah sets God against God all to justify himself. <laughs> Friends, where might you be falsely using God's word to justify yourself? In what ways do you undermine the Bible's authority to justify your disobedience? We read a text like Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And we use it to shoot down any opinions or any judgments contrary to our own in order to justify our disobedience before God. We can do this, can't we? <laughs> we can do this. Or we go to scripture in order to feel superior to others who don't hold the same position on an issue, on an issue that we do. We don't come humbly but arrogantly. We go to God's word self righteously. They don't do things this way, and so they're not legit. They don't hold to that position, they're not credible. This isn't the first time that we've seen this. Satan in Matthew 4 tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And he distorts Scripture to claim a false authority for himself. Friends, this is not the one that we want to be aligned with. He twists Scripture to promise freedom, and yet he enslaves everyone who takes the bait. Don't take that bait. Don't take that bait. Using the word to justify your own selfish ends only enslaves you. It doesn't bring you freedom. It enslaves. And Jonah was willing to twist God's word to conform to his own understanding of what God is like. All to serve his own self-interest. The the destruction of Nineveh. He wanted to fashion a God after his own likeness. And this is exactly what unrighteous anger does. It's self-righteous. It erects a criterion, a, a standard, of right and wrong based upon our own desires and our own values, it's a standard that serves us and it serves me and it destroys others. It destroys them. Notice how Jonah use, uses his pronouns right here in verses one and two, or sorry, in verses two and three. Notice this: I, me, and my. O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste. To flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Woof. Jonah's exhausting. Jonah has placed himself in the judge's seat. Or to put it another way, Jonah was a jury of one. Declaring God guilty as charged based upon his own selfish standard. Anger is itself an attitude of judgment. That's what it is. And yet, when that standard or expectation isn't met, we, along with Jonah, cry, That's not right. That's unfair. This is why the Lord asked the question in verses four and nine Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? To put that more precisely, Are you right to be angry? That's literally what it means. Are you right to be angry? The implied answer is, well, no. (laughs) But why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord and not Jonah. God's mercy doesn't go to those whom Jonah and we deem worthy. A standard not based upon God's merciful character But rather, Jonah bases a standard upon his own self-interest and his own self-serving ends. And brothers, praise God that that's not the case. That salvation does not go to those that we deem worthy, but rather it goes to those whom God shows mercy. For Jonah, God's character was standing in the way of what he valued rather than shaping What he valued. When our anger goes astray, it says something about what's going astray in our heart. It reveals that we're the center of our own universe. We are God wannabes. We're God wannabes. It reveals our idolatry. And this is not the first time that we've seen this. We see this in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where the apostle James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's interesting where James doesn't place the blame of the fighting, isn't it? He doesn't place it on the other person not meeting our needs or you know, acting like a goober or whatever. He doesn't place the blame on them for not thinking straight. No, James places the fighting squarely on you, squarely on me. He says there isn't a battle within them, the battle is within you. He says there isn't a battle with them. Your passions are at war within you. We fight and we quarrel because we don't get what we want. And what we want and what we crave and desire that we can't live without, that actually reveals our idol. That is where our idol is at. An idol is anything that we place above God in our lives. And brothers and sisters, if you want to be in the business of just unearthing idols in your heart, you have to begin with you. You've got to begin with you. And so ask yourselves, what do you want right now that you're not getting, that you can't live without? What expectations do you have that are going unmet That are making you upset. What are those expectations? What do you want? What do you desire? It could be anything from a child not obeying you, which I often feel, to a boss throwing more hours on you, just getting you bitter (laughs) that you gotta work more. It could be any of that. What is it for you? What does your anger reveal about what you desire? For Jonah, it was those he hated receiving mercy. He couldn't stand it. It made him want to die. In verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's idolatry revealed how self-absorbed he was. He would rather die than see Nineveh live. (laughs) Amazing. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Jonah's such a hypocrite. I mean, one minute, this guy's praising God for his mercy that he just received in chapter 2. And the next, he's wanting to curse God and die in chapter 4. What's up with this guy? What a weird guy. Jonah loves God's grace toward him, but he hates it toward his enemies. And friends, the point is that we're the exact same, well, the, the exact same way as well. We're hypocrites just like Jonah. One minute we're praising God for his mercy toward us, and the next we're resenting it toward others. In some sense, we can resonate with Jonah's anger. I mean, after all, these people did great harm to his people. We can resonate with that. He's got a strong sense of justice, and that's a good thing. God put that in Jonah. He's put it in all of us at our birth. He's put it in all of us as those who are created in the image of God. But that can easily be distorted by our sinful nature. It can be distorted. It can become a bad thing when we desire for justice, when our desire for justice isn't wanting to just see wrongs made right, but rather we would just see our enemies destroyed. (laughs) We want to obliterate them. Jonah's sense of justice is twisted because even after the Ninevites received mercy, he still wanted them destroyed. Brothers and sisters, who would you hate to see, to see them receive the mercy of God? Who would you hate to see receive the mercy of God? Maybe it's someone who has wronged you. Or maybe it's someone you're tempted to dismiss. Another group of people that you're tempted to demonize because of who they are. Another group of people that you're tempted to demonize, but also that maybe you have this us versus them mentality because their culture and their customs, they're not like yours not like mine. Where might you be tempted to look down on others coming from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and show prejudice to them and actually show partiality to yourself? Where might you be tempted to believe that God actually has more favor and loyalty toward you and your crowd, you and your people, than he does toward them And those people, because of who they are. Where might we have forgotten God's command, Jesus' command, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Where might we care more for our own self-serving interest than the salvation of those not like us and those who make us uncomfortable? This was Jonah's problem. This was his problem. For Jonah, he saw those deserving of God's grace, that is him and and Israel, his crowd, and those undeserving of God's grace, those rascal Ninevites. But God was showing him that none are deserving of his grace. I love what Jared Wilson recently said, the author Jared Wilson recently said on this. When it comes to grace, there aren't deserving people and undeserving people. There are only undeserving people and God. Because of our sin, none of us deserve God's mercy. Jonah saw a people not worth saving. God saw an undeserving people in need of great salvation. And God was using their salvation to expose Jonah's sin and to really recalibrate Jonah's heart to God's heart. Jonah's anger was self-serving, and it led him to despair of life itself. That's where that leads you. Self serving complaint and anger, that's where that leads you. It will only lead you to despair. But what hope do we have when we find ourselves in a similar situation to Jonah? What honestly is our hope? God shows Jonah and He shows us the way forward in point number two God's self giving compassion. The previous section closed with a question given to Jonah. God gave this question to Jonah Are you right to be angry? But Jonah didn't respond. Did you notice that? He didn't respond to it. And now the Lord was about to teach Jonah a lesson on his compassion. After seeing what Jonah feared was becoming a reality in Nineveh, he decides to set up his tent east of the city to see what would become of it. Nineveh had repented early in that 40 days. For Jonah, there's still time for them to blow it and for God just to wreck them. There's still time. I've got to set up outside the city so that I can watch this. And yet it was there in that tiny tent that God began to have a heart-to-heart with Jonah. And the Lord starts his lesson in verse 6. He says this, or it says this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. The last time we saw the word exceedingly, was up in verse 1 with reference to Jonah's exceeding anger. Now Jonah is exceedingly glad. Once again, notice why. God's mercy provokes Jonah to anger when his enemies receive it. But it provokes him to joy when he receives God's mercy. Jonah is consistently focused upon himself. Consistently focused on serving his own self-interest. And yet while Jonah is self-serving, God is self-giving Any of us in here would have rained fire down like the 4th of July on Jonah's head for what he had done, right? We're like, he just needs to be just smited off the face of the earth. I know I felt that way reading this. We gotta get rid of this guy. He needs to get a new prophet. Why is he so patient? This is crazy. But he is. And though we might have wanted to smite Jonah, God doesn't. Instead, God is patient With Jonah, his patience means that he's long-tempered rather than short-tempered, like Jonah. God's patience sees what's wrong, but he's slow to anger. Did you notice that in the text? God is slow to anger, and Jonah is hot and quick to anger. This is the Lord's way with his covenant people that we saw in verse 2, that glorious explanation of who God is toward his people. And this is how God is with his people. He is patient. Whereas Jonah is set off within a matter of seconds. God works over days. He works over months. He works over years. He works over decades. He works for a lifetime in your life. Even his love, even his love is said to be patient in 1 Corinthians 13. For Jonah, there was no patient love for Nineveh. Absolutely not. Jonah's patience was like a sprint. It was quickly over. God's patience was like a marathon. He's in it for the long haul. His patience is a mercy to Jonah, and his patience, brothers and sisters, is a mercy to us. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be a balm to your soul. You may find yourself in a similar situation to Jonah, living in the sin of self-absorbed, unrighteous anger, and yet God has mercy on you even there, even right there. He has mercy on you. He has patience for you. As his child, he is patient to see you grow and to learn from him. He looks at your plight, and he's right there with you in it for the long haul to have more of you for himself so that you would lean into him rather than into your own self-serving desires. And what's amazing is that God doesn't even say anything to begin this lesson. He doesn't say anything. He's just showing Jonah what he wants him to learn. He's showing him what he wants him to learn. He's responding to anger with the mercy of patience. And that's a good lesson for us. How are we to respond to our anger? With patience. How do we respond in anger toward one another? Patience. And we can respond with patience because God himself is patient and he is slow to anger toward us. If the God of the universe responds this way toward you in your anger, how much more for us to respond this way toward others who wrong us? How much more? Patience isn't passive. It's purposeful. And we see this with the rest of God's test to Jonah. As Jonah is baking, or as he's basking, he will be baking in just a moment. But as Jonah is basking, In the joy of this plant's shade, God quickly appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it withers in verse 7. As if that wasn't enough, God appoints a scorching east wind to give Jonah the worst sunburn of his life in verse 8. But what's the point of all this? I mean, is God just toying around with Jonah? What's going on here? This is a little ridiculous. Come on, God. Didn't we just get done talking about his patience? And here we see God doing this? What's up with this? God's patience is purposeful. It's not passive. And throughout the book, we've been noticing God's sovereign hand actively orchestrating events, actively orchestrating nature to bring his prophet exactly to where he wants him to be, exactly at this point right here. He's been orchestrating all of nature to get Jonah to this point. This is where the book lands. This is what it's about. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Chapter 4, verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Chapter 4, verse 7, God appointed a worm. Chapter, or chapter 4, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. What Jonah was wishing for evil toward Nineveh, God was working for good. All for what? To remind Jonah who was in control. He was reminding Jonah who was in control. God was showing Jonah that he was sovereignly orchestrating all of these things, that he has control over all things, that is his sovereignty, his control over everything, but that he is purposefully working all things for Jonah's good and God's glory, even when they're difficult. That's what we call the providence of God. The difference between the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is that the providence of God is purposeful. It's got an aim to it. It's going somewhere. God's control over all things, sovereignty. That control working all things for good, even in the midst of difficulty, providence. And what God is showing Jonah by experience is what Jonah was hoping would happen to Nineveh. Nineveh had experienced the comfort of God's blessing of mercy, and yet Jonah hopes that that comfort, like the plant, just gets eaten up and shrivels and dies. He wants the comfort that that plant brings to turn into loss, into disappointment like the worm, and to pain like the wind. And yet through this plant, worm, wind lesson that God has for Jonah, God was showing Jonah how his providence actually neutralizes his anger. It neutralizes his anger. Because when God's bigger purposes are in control for his people, Jonah is able to see good behind the evil that has happened to him. That's how his providence neutralizes that anger. That for God's people, he is orchestrating all things for their joy. And it's from that viewpoint, It's from that viewpoint Jonah's heart can soften. His providence would serve as a mercy to Jonah. And it serves as a mercy to you and I. And friends, what a comfort this is for you in the plant, worm, and wind of your life. That's a comfort for you. In every detail of your life, God is working his mercy and his goodness toward you. What we often think is God's curse is actually... God's blessing because the comfort and the disappointment and the pain are purposeful. They serve as God's tools to where he is, he is sculpting you. He is shaping you further into his son's image. They're purposeful tools in your life. So often we want to run, we want to hide from these things. God's saying, lean in. Lean in because there is goodness here for you if you do. And that speaks to any wrong that is done to you in this life. It speaks to any wrong done to you. Because the mercy of God's providence doesn't just sweep things under the rug. But it reminds you that even what some meant for evil, God means for good. And he has the power to right every wrong because he is sovereign over it all. He is both the just judge and the merciful justifier. God's mercy In providence is a reflection of his self-giving compassion toward you and I. But Jonah still didn't see it that way. He loved the comfort of the plant, and he despised that worm and that wind to the point of death, verse 8. And he asked God that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah really is all about himself. Without the comfort of that plant, he'd rather die. But God doesn't just let Jonah off the hook. He continues to press in, and he shows Jonah the inconsistency of his heart compared to that of God's. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well, are you right to be angry for that plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Whereas the first time God asked Jonah this question, he didn't answer. Now things have been rumbling. They've been stirring the pot within Jonah's heart. And he's got an answer. But God's got a final lesson for Jonah's answer. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, You pity or show compassion on the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity or show compassion upon Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The Lord is making a lesser to greater argument right here. He's showing Jonah that his compassion for something so small that only serves his self-interest is ridiculous compared to God's self-giving compassion towards something so great as 120,000 people without a moral compass. And not only that, even their cattle for crying out loud. Jonah, you care about a plant. Can you not even care about their cattle? God is wanting Jonah to see how narrow, how limited his understanding of God's grace and compassion is. And yet God is showing Jonah how expansive and how wide his compassion Through Nineveh's deliverance and God appointing that plant, worm, and wind, he was exposing Jonah's own idolatry of everything that serves him. Jonah cared more about his own comfort and convenience than he did the eternal state of the souls in Nineveh. Brothers and sisters, where do your comfort and convenience actually hinder your concern for the eternal state of others? Where does that happen in your life? Where are you more concerned about What's good for you than what is eternally good for others? Where might you prize your reputation, your position, your accolades, your your family, or even your nation like Jonah over a concern for the lost who are not like you and are coming from a different culture? Do you see how Jonah's idolatry actually hinders his mission? It hinders the mission. He was a prophet of God, and somehow he missed it. He knew God's people were called to be a blessing to all nations. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. He knew that. Even those who were wicked, right? He knew that they were to be a blessing to them. And yet his hatred blinded him to their need for salvation. Where might that be the case for us when we dislike or find other cultures or customs uncomfortable just to be around, and they end up hindering us. That ends up hindering us from going to them in love, in compassion. Where is it that uncomfortability and convenience, that inconvenience, actually keeps us from proclaiming the gospel to those who need it? The antidote ultimately does not lie in continuing in your anger or comfort, but in beholding the greatness In the goodness of God's compassion in his son. That's the antidote. While Jonah went outside the city in hopes that it would burn, Jesus went outside Jerusalem to weep over it. Jonah let his anger fall on the Ninevites. Jesus let the father's anger fall upon him toward our sin, to pay for our sin. Jonah only loved those who loved him, but Jesus loves the unlovable. Jonah loved what served him. Jesus loves us by giving himself as a ransom for our sin. Jonah cried out for their destruction. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah was looking for the condemnation of Nineveh, and Jesus died on the cross for the salvation of all who would turn and trust in him. Jesus is the prophet greater than Jonah and the proof of God's self-giving compassion toward you. It's the proof of how wide, how expansive, and how generous God is to you that he would even give up his own son for you to pay for your own sins. We are just like the Ninevites. We're just like them. We're Gentiles too. And Jonah was in the same place. There is not Deserving and undeserving, there is undeserving in God. And God has been extremely, overaboundingly generous in his compassion to us in Christ. Friends, you, this morning, can be a recipient of God's compassion no matter what you've done. If God can save an entire city full of wicked Ninevites, he can save you. He can save you. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then experience the compassion and the love of God that you will never be able to outrun. Come in, turn from your sin and trust in him. The cross of Jesus is where perfect love and justice meet. This is the great answer and the the answer to the theological conundrum that Jonah had. It's the answer to how God can be both just and not clearing the guilty and yet merciful to all who turn to him. Well, this book ends with a cliffhanger. And it reminds us of our scripture reading that we just read from Luke 15 just a moment ago on the prodigal son. Jonah was like the younger brother in chapter 1. Chapter 4, he's self-righteous, like the older brother. And just as the parable left us to consider our own right self-righteousness and narrow-mindedness in love, so also this book ends with a question left for us to consider. So, friends, what will it be for you? What will it be for you? Will you learn to love what God loves, even if that love extends to those you don't love? Will you learn that? Or will you remain in your comfort and hate that will ultimately lead you to despair? Which will it be? Let's pray. Great God, we give praise to you. You are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Father, we give praise to you for that. Thank you that that is who you are at the very core of your being, that you are not an egomaniacal God, but that this is who you are. And we praise you for that. Lord, we pray that our own hearts, that we've just been learning over the past four weeks, Lord, we pray that our own hearts would reflect your heart for all people, that your compassion is expansive and wide for all who will turn to you in repentance. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we would repent of where our compassion for others that aren't like us, those that we may deem unworthy to receive your grace. Lord, we, we repent of, of where we don't show compassion to them, where our compassion does not align with yours. Lord, help us to be a people that reflect your very heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, over the past four weeks, we have been considering the theme that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the very thing that we are gonna sing of in our last song, our own salvation. Let's stand and sing our final song, The Lord is My Salvation.